Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Mark, chapter 14, verse 60, as we follow along with today's lesson. And the high priest stood up in the midst, getting nowhere, you know. And so he asked Jesus directly, saying, Don't you answer any of these charges that these witnesses are making against you? Don't you respond in your own defense? But Isaiah had said in prophecy, As a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. No defense. But Jesus held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Now, it was the belief in those days that the Messiah would indeed be the Son of God. And that's why the question, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Today the Jews say that the rabbis teach that the Messiah will not be the Son of God, he's a man. But in this book, The Search for the Messiah, uh, Mark shows where the earlier rabbis believed that the Messiah would be the Son of God. And it's obvious here, the high priest was putting it together. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Because it was prophesied of the Messiah that the Lord said unto my Lord, Thou art my beloved Son, this day have I begotten thee. And also, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Obviously, prophecy of the Messiah, but he is a son who is given. God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. So are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, we don't need any further witnesses. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And then some began to spit on him. Isaiah said that he did not hide his face from those who spit on him. In the Orient, that's the the worst insult, uh, is spitting on people. Sometimes we've been over there and people spit at us uh, because they know we're Christians. But it's... uh, You know, it's just a a thing of disdain and disrespect. You learn to dodge, though. (laughs) And they, they covered his face and began to buffet him. Now, the body has been created in a very marvelous way. Uh, We see Sunday after Sunday these quarterbacks getting hit with tremendous blows or a end, you know, catching a pass and then just being creamed. And you see them jump up. 
You think, well, man, they'll never get up from that one. And you see them jump up and run back to the huddle. Sometimes they get up rather slowly, but they, you know, get up. But you see, the body is so so constructed by God (laughs) that it can't be destructed. Uh, Well, it can be, but it takes an awful lot of abuse. But there is this thing that we do almost instinctively. You don't really think, oh, you know, there comes a blow. I better faint, you know, uh, with the blow. But you just do it sort of naturally. Now, when the quarterback really gets hurt is when he gets blindsided when he is not prepared for it. If he sees the guy coming, then he can relax and, and, and roll and tumble with it, and it doesn't hurt nearly as bad. But if you don't see it coming, you get blindsided, that's when you can really sustain serious injuries. Now, you see fellows boxing and pummeling each other. But as you see a blow coming, there is that instinct of, Rolling, they say, with the punch so that uh, you can take a punch as long as you can see it coming. Your, your reflexes are such that you, you roll with it and you don't feel the, f- the firmness of the blow or the full intensity of the blow because you have that natural instinct to, to uh, feign and uh, to roll with it. But when your face or head is covered, You cannot then see the blows coming. You then feel the full impact of the blows. And thus, in covering his head, he then feels the full impact as they begin to buffet him. They began to mock him, saying, Prophesy! Tell us who it was that hit you. And the servants struck him with the palms of their hands. He suffered this physical abuse from them. As this was going on, Peter was beneath in the palace, and there came one of the maids of the high priest. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, You were also with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied, saying, I don't understand or I don't even know what you're talking about. And he went out in the cock crew. And the maid saw him again and began to say to those that were standing there, This is one of them. And he denied it again. And after a little while, they that were standing by said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean and You have a Galilean accent. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. And the second time the cock crew, and Peter then called to mind the word of Jesus when he said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me thrice. And when he thought thereon, he wept, broken. How many times have we failed the Lord? How many things that we have promised have we not come through with? 
How many vows that we have made that we have broken? It is not at all right to call in question Peter's sincerity. I believe that Peter was entirely sincere when he was saying, Lord, they could kill me and I would never deny you. Peter was expressing the sincerity of his own soul. He really believed that. He really believed that his devotion and commitment to Jesus was so great that he could die for Jesus and would not deny him. And yet we find Peter denying the Lord, doing exactly what he said he wouldn't. Paul the Apostle in the latter part of Romans chapter 7 tells of the problems that we often have. He said, I find that there's some kind of a perverse law that seems to be at work within me. For the good that I would, I do not. But that which I do not allow, that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. I am doing things that I really don't want to do. I'm not doing things that I do want to do and know I should do. To the Galatians, he said, the flesh is warring against the spirit and the spirit are against the flesh so that we do not always do the things that we ought or that we would. As Jesus said to Peter, the spirit indeed is willing or ready, but the flesh is weak. And we all understand that. We all know what that is about. We've all gone through those very same experiences where we found ourselves doing things that we swore we would never do. The weakness of our flesh. Now it is good to know that his mercy endureth forever. And that God understands our frame and he knows we are dust. You're made of dust. You're not made of steel. You're not a superman. And God knows that. And in time we discover it. <laughs> and we realize our human frailties. And in so doing, so often we're disappointed with ourselves. So often with Peter we find ourselves weeping over our failures. I didn't want to do that. I didn't intend to do that. And yet I did it. But even as Peter failed and wept over the failure. Now you, you have two contrasting things here. You have Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. Later he repents. When he sees that Jesus is being crucified, he brought the money back and he said, take this money back. You know, I betrayed innocent blood. And they said, that's your problem, man. We can't take it back. We can't put it in the treasury. It's blood money. So he just threw it on the floor and said, well, do with it what you want. And he repented and it said, and he went out and hung himself. Peter repented with bitter tears and was forgiven. The difference, the difference. And so many people today, they're sorry for what they did, but 
only because it didn't work out like they were hoping it would. Others are genuinely sorry because of their weakness and their failure. They didn't intend to do that. And God is merciful and God forgives. And Peter was yet used by God as one of the founding fathers of the church. Had a tremendous, powerful ministry. And he had a chance to redeem himself, which he did very valiantly in Acts chapter 4. So when you fail, it doesn't put you out. God doesn't just say, oh, forget him. But he's gracious, he's forgiving, he's merciful. And he sets you on your feet again and says, okay, let's try it once more. This time, hold on a little tighter. Stick closer. Don't try and follow afar off. Stick close to me and we'll see it through together. And with Christ, I can do anything. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Without Christ, I can do nothing. But through Christ, anything. Turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, as we continue our journey through the Bible. Now, in the 14th chapter, we had Mark's account of the Last Supper with the disciples, the Passover feast, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas there in the garden, the trial of Jesus before the religious council, And the chapter ended with Peter's denial of Jesus. So we are in that same day because the Jews, the day begins at 6 o'clock in the evening. So in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. This is that entire religious council of the Jews, including the priest, the scribes, the elders. And they bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, the power for capital punishment was actually taken away from the Jews by the Roman government just about the time of the birth of Christ. In fact, when Jesus was just a young boy in Nazareth, the Roman government took away the power of the Jews to inflict capital punishment. The Jews interpreted this as the end of their, uh, of their reign. Uh, the end of the kingdom. And some of the Jews actually went in public with sackcloth and ashes mourning over the fact that God had failed to keep his promise. For the promise 
through Jacob to Judah was the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh or the Messiah comes. And they interpreted the taking away of their power for capital punishment by the Roman government as the taking of the scepter, the power. And the Messiah had not come, and thus they were in the streets mourning uh, over the failure of God's promise. Little did they know that right then in Nazareth, the Messiah was growing up just waiting for God's time for his revelation. So they had to take Jesus to Pilate in order to get the death sentence. Now, on other occasions, such as in the book of Acts with the case of Stephen, they stoned Stephen when they became angry, and the Roman government would just sort of turn their head and look the other way. They'd allowed them to... Um, create a ruckus and stone people if they so desired. But they legally could not, in a court of law, sentence a person to death. And that is why they brought Jesus to Pilate, because they wanted to get a death sentence. Now, in order to bring charges before Pilate, they had to bring political charges they could not say, well, he uh, is claiming to be the Messiah. Uh, the Roman government could care less. So they accused him of claiming to be the king. They accused him of encouraging people not to pay taxes to Caesar. And uh, they uh, were trying to frame criminal civil charges against him, against the Roman government, so that Pilate would hear the case. It is interesting that in bringing him before Pilate, the Roman form of execution was crucifixion. The Jews usually just stoned the person to death, and that was their form of uh, execution. But with the Romans, it was crucifixion. And according to the prophecies of the Old Testament, he had to really be crucified in order to fulfill the prophecies. And thus, their bringing him before Pilate was not really just a happenstance, but it was a part of God's plan because, uh, again, uh, the he, he must be put to death by crucifixion in order to fulfill the prophecies of Psalm 22 and Isaiah uh, 52, 13, and 14. So they brought him to Pilate, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? For uh, this was one of the accusations that they had made against Jesus. And Jesus answering said unto him, basically, you said it. Yes, I am. And Pilate asked, and the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Now, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, 
We are told that as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He did not defend himself against the false accusations that were being made. Now, this is an unusual kind of a situation. For an innocent man to be charged with a capital crime and false witnesses being brought, but he does not respond or answer the charges that are made by the false witnesses. He doesn't seek to defend himself. So much so that Pilate said, Aren't you going to answer? Don't you hear all of these things they're accusing you of? But Jesus answered nothing so that Pilate actually marveled at the silence of Jesus. Now at the feast, it was the custom for the Roman government, that is the feast of Passover, uh, as a gesture of goodwill, uh, they usually released unto the people a political prisoner. And uh, it was just sort of to celebrate uh, the Passover and to uh, sort of give the Roman nod of, of uh, consent and, and sort of a holding out a uh, olive branch kind of a thing. And uh, thus they chose a political prisoner that they would release to the people. Now, Jesus was in fact being charged with political crimes and thus he would classify uh, for the release of a political prisoner at the feast time. Now, it's very possible that Barabbas had a group of friends who were there that morning specifically to sort of seek the release of Barabbas. He was part of an insurrection. He actually was guilty of the things that they were falsely charging Jesus of, a rebellion against the Roman rule. This man was actually guilty he had been with a band of men who had joined an insurrection against Rome, and in this insurrection, he had murdered a person. But it could be that this group of zealots, of which he was once, or he was a part, it could be that they had gathered that morning specifically for the purpose of seeking the release of Barabbas, who was being held as a political prisoner so that they were already prepared to ask for the release of Barabbas because they are now asking Pilate to go ahead and to fulfill this custom of releasing a political prisoner. And it could be that their being there for the release of Barabbas just really played into the hands of the high priest uh, who had brought Jesus uh, for uh, the sentence of death. So now at the feast, he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And Mark tells us about this one prisoner named Barabbas, who 
was bound with those who had made insurrection with him, who had committed the murder in the insurrection. And the multitude began to cry aloud for him to do as they had ever done to them. In other words, they were crying for Caesar, release to us the prisoner, release to us. And so Pilate answered them saying, will you that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew, Pilate knew, that the chief priest had delivered Jesus because of envy or jealousy. Uh, he knew that uh, the charges that were being made against Jesus were spurious. And so uh, he, they're crying for the release of a prisoner. And uh, he said, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? But the chief priest moved the people that they should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. So here, the choice of the people. Interesting, isn't it? The choice is that of the law or the lawless. Jesus represented the law of God. Barabbas resented, or, uh, represented lawlessness. And the people chose the lawlessness over the law. People haven't really changed much through the years. <laughs> if it were up for an election, you could be sure the lawless will win. There is that within people, that lawlessness against God. And here they chose Barabbas. So the question, what shall I do then with Jesus? That was the question that Pilate was facing. What is he to do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah or the King of the Jews? It's not a question that is just exclusively Pilate's, actually, it's a universal question that every man must face. Tonight, that question is just as relevant for you as it was for Pilate. You have to make the same decision. You have to determine what you are going to do with Jesus, who is called the King of the Jews. And you can confess him as Lord and Savior. And he said, if you would confess him before men, he would confess you before his Father, which is in heaven. You can deny him. Deny him the lordship of your life. You can rebel against him. But he said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in the presence of the holy angels. You can receive him as your Lord and Savior. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. Or you can reject him. You can believe on him, and whosoever believeth shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Or you can go on in unbelief. And in Revelation 21, it tells us the fate of the unbelievers. 
You can be for him or you can be against him, but one thing you can't be is neutral. Jesus said, he who is not for me is against me. And so many people are trying to take more or less a neutral stand concerning Jesus, but he has made such radical claims that leaves no room for neutrality. He either is the son of God or he is a fraud. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. Or more kindly, he's a lunatic. But you have to make a decision. You cannot be neutral. And thus the question, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ, is the question that you must personally answer. Someone else can't answer it for you. You can't write in on someone else's faith, your mother's or father's or family's or grandfather's. God has no grandchildren It's every man making his own decision concerning what he is going to do. Thus, the Roman judge is the one who is having his fate determined by his decision. And so it is with all men. You see, your decision doesn't affect the fate of Jesus at all. But it does affect your fate. Your eternal destiny is determined by what you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ or the King of the Jews. And your decision has its effects upon your future. So it is a very important question. In fact, the most important question that you will ever face is what you are going to do with Jesus, who is called the Christ. Paul the Apostle said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he talked about death as as just, you know, something that he was actually looking forward to. I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Yet it's necessary for me to stay around a little while to encourage and strengthen you. We who are in these bodies often groan, earnestly desiring to be delivered from them, not to be an unembodied spirit, but to be clothed upon with the body which is from heaven. Those who have made him the Lord of their lives, have found the life in Christ that gives them the hope for eternity. Voltaire, that famous French atheist, one of his favorite phrases concerning Jesus was, crush the wretch. It is interesting that when he came to the point of death, it was much different from Paul's who said, I have fought a good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, our righteous judge, shall give to me and to all who love his appearing. But Voltaire, on his deathbed, was crying out, screaming out, more light, more light, 
more light. And that was his last words. He went out into the darkness of eternity without hope, without Christ. So, vital question, one that we must each one answer for ourselves. He asked the people, and their response was, crucify him. But he said unto them, why? What evil has he done? Now you see that the whole judicial system has broken down. A judge is arguing with the crowd. You can't really picture that, can you? A judge, and here are the people in the uh, courtroom observing the uh, trial, and, and they, they start calling out, and rather than rapping and calling for order and getting the bailiff to take these people out of the courtroom, he's starting to argue with them. Why? What evil has he done? But there is no rationale. They can't point to any evil that he's done. And so... When you have no rationale, you just shout louder and more vehemently. And that's exactly what they did. They began to cry more vehemently, crucify him, let him be crucified. So Pilate, willing to content the people, and that's an awful phrase. How many things are horrible things are being done in order to content the people, giving in from what you in your heart know is right, giving in against what your conscience is telling you. In your heart, you know what you should do, but not having the strength and the courage to do it, you succumb to the cries of the crowd, to the pressure of your peers. And you are forced by this pressure to do things that you yourself know are absolutely wrong. Yet you succumb to that pressure. And this is the case of Pilate. In order to content the people, he released Barabbas unto them and he delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Now, it is interesting that the, the Gospels really don't uh, play up this scourging. The scourging was a common practice by the Roman government in order to elicit confessions out of the prisoners the prisoner was bent over so his back was fully exposed and they would use this leather whip with little bits of broken glass and bone embedded in it that was designed to rip the flesh so that when they were finished with the administering of this scourging, this beating, the person would look like, his back would look like hamburger. Many times they died as a result of the excruciating pain and the loss of blood. Many times they went insane and they became 
raving maniacs as the result of the scourging. Sometimes the whip would whip around their face and there are records of their eyes being pulled out by the scourge. It was a horrible thing. And and it seems so cavalier he delivered him to be scourged. Now the question is this. What does the scourging have to do with our salvation? Because I cannot believe that God would allow this to take place, even plan for it to take place. Because in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, it said, I gave my back to the smiters. And in Isaiah chapter 53, it uh, declares there that... um, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. There has to be a purpose for the scourging. God had to have a purpose in it. The cross, the shed blood of Christ, we understand fully that there he was giving his life. The the blood flowing out symbolized the life going out. And there as they put the spear through his heart and the blood and the water came forth, through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness of our sins for he was dying as our substitute in our place, as a sacrifice for sin. That we understand. But I'm afraid we understand very little about the scourging. They they really don't make much about it in the New Testament, though it was a horrible, horrible experience. And then the soldiers led him away into the hall that is called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole band of soldiers. And so they clothed him with purple, the royal color. They platted a crown of thorns and put it upon his head. And they began to greet him, Hail, King of the Jews, mockery. Mockery and scorn. Interesting thing, though, however, the crown of thorns, an interesting choice for a crown. For in going back to Genesis, where did the thorns come from? You remember when Adam sinned, God said, Cursed be the ground, thorns shall it bring forth. Thorns are the result of the curse of God upon the ground because of man's sin. Years ago, I was directing a YMCA camp in Arizona, out near Oracle Junction, in a place we dubbed Scorpion Gulch. for obvious reasons. And we had taken a group of the young boys on a hike up to an abandoned mine and went down the mine shaft and explained a little bit to them about uh, the stratas and uh, showed them some of the veins that were being followed as they were pursuing after the gold. And on the way back from the 
trip to the mine shaft, one of the little boys back behind me began to scream in obvious pain. And I went back to, to see what was going on. And here he had this Achoya cactus just fastened into the back of his hand. Uh, it's called jumping cactus, but it really doesn't jump. Uh, it though does break off very easily. If you just brush it, it'll break off and the thorns just sort of uh, attach uh, as, as it breaks off of the cactus. It just sort of attaches itself. Now, it's just thorns all the way around and so uh, you have to be careful in removing it. And what I did is I got a couple of sticks and worked the sticks between the thorns underneath and then popped the thing off. But as I was working the sticks in, and this little kid was just sort of, you know, uh, <laughs> a lot of pain with his thorns fastened in. As I was working it in, he said, that darn guy, Adam. <laughs> and I said, where did you go? Where do you go to Sunday school? He said, the First Baptist Church. I said, well, you're learning. <laughs> thorns, the result of the curse. And thus, Jesus was dying to remove the curse of sin. And so I find it quite interesting that they would crown him with thorns. Thorns that resulted from sin. And now he is taking away the sin of the world, crowned with thorns. They smote him on the head with a reed. Now, the night before he had been buffeted by the officers of the high priest, he had been beaten by them. They put a sack over his head and hit him and said, prophesy who hit you. And, and they had really treated him unmercifully the night before. Now here are the soldiers picking up on it. And they are hitting him on the head with a reed or a cane, a caning process. I think we've heard something about that recently. And they did spit upon him. Isaiah 56, I did not hide my face from those who spit on me. And bowing their knees, they feigned to worship him. Hail, King of the Jews. In mockery, bowing and making a big sport of it, as men, heartless men, sometimes do. You know, I, I find it extremely difficult to understand how heartless man can be to fellow man. We talk about civilization and civilized people. And the Roman government was supposed to be a very civilized, uh, highly developed civilization. And we're supposed to be living in a highly developed civilization today. But it's amazing what civilized men can do to other men and to other human beings. And, and we don't have to look very far back to see it. We look back at the Holocaust in Germany 
And, and you read the accounts and it's just unthinkable that man could do that to fellow man. But you read of the things that are happening in Bosnia and the atrocities on both sides. And you wonder, how can a person do that to a fellow human being? And so we see them doing it to Jesus. And how? Because of sin. Because of Satan's dominating their lives, their thought processes. And Jesus is dying for these kinds of people. People whose lives have been perverted as the result of sin. Less than human as the result of sin. The very ones for whom he is dying are those who are inflicting such pain, punishment, and mockery upon him. And so when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put on his own clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian. Now, Cyrene was there on the point of North Africa, right in the area of Libya. This man probably had come for the Passover to Jerusalem. And while he was there, he heard the commotion, he saw the crowd, he saw the Roman soldier who was leading the crowd with the sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, because as they would make a procession to the cross, they would actually take a circuitous route through the city in order that as many people as possible uh, will, will see the, the accusation and they will fear uh, the power of Rome. And so in front of the procession, there would be four soldiers, one in front holding the sign, two at the side and one behind the, the prisoner who was carrying his cross to the place for the crucifixion. And so he saw the soldier marching with the sign, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And one of the soldiers put his sword flat on his shoulder, and that required him to carry the burden of that soldier for one mile. You couldn't argue it was just Roman law if a soldier would lay his sword on flatwise on your shoulder, that was just, you, you became for one mile his slave. You'd have to pick up his luggage and carry it for a mile. That was Roman law. That's when Jesus said, if they compel you to go one mile, go two. <laughs> you know, go the extra mile. That's where you get the idea. And he compelled this Simon to carry the cross of Jesus. No doubt at this point, Jesus was already beginning to physically weaken. He had lost so much blood through the scourging. He had been beaten unmercifully the night before by the guards of the priest and now by the Romans themselves. And seeing him beginning to lose strength, he probably 
tapped this fellow Simon to carry his cross. Now it is interesting that he identifies Simon as the father of Rufus and Alexander. Where that doesn't mean anything to us, the fact that he inserts the names of the sons probably means that it did mean something to the people to whom Mark was writing. That they knew Alexander and Rufus. It is thought that maybe the book of Mark was written first to the Christians in Rome. And it is interesting when Paul writes his letter to Rome, there in the last chapter as he is giving greetings, he said, greet also Rufus and his mother and mine. In other words, Paul was saying she's like a mother to me, the mother of Rufus. Uh, so it could be that this is the Rufus. And because they knew Rufus, uh, it was his father, Simon. It, you see, when Simon got to Golgotha, he probably thought, man, I'll carry it to my Bible, then I'm getting out of here. But it could be that something intrigued him with Jesus. He was attracted to him even as he bore his cross so that he waited there. And as they were nailing the hands, he heard him say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And being intrigued by it, he stayed, perhaps lingered, long enough to become a believer in Jesus. There was in the church of Antioch, Acts chapter 13, a man who had a prominent place in the church in Antioch whose name was Simeon, which is a, another name for Simon. And it said they called him Niger, which uh, means of swarthy complexion. African, and being from Cyrene, very possible that in Acts, uh, the 13th chapter, the Simeon that we have there is the Simon of Mark, uh, that he was converted and was known then later to the church. So he was passing by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and they compelled him to bear his cross and they brought him unto the place called Golgotha, which being interpreted is the place of the skull. Now, it could be called the place of the skull because of uh, the appearance of the uh, hillside. And, of course, in Jerusalem today, uh, across from what they call Solomon's quarries, halfway between uh, Herod's gate and the gate, uh, Damascus gate, standing on the wall, looking across over the top of the bus station. Uh, you see the uh, top of Mount Moriah, and you see on the side uh, a, uh, the caves that form uh, the sort of a, to look like a skull, the hollow sockets of the eyes and the bridge of the nose, uh, next to the cave that they call Jeremiah's grotto. Or it could be that there were just a lot of skulls, that it was the place of crucifixion and there were just a lot of skulls around because as a rule, when a person was crucified, they did not bury the body, 
but just took it from the cross and they allowed the vulture and the scavenger dogs to just eat it and left the skeleton there. So it could be that there were just a bunch of skulls around there and that's where it got the name, the place of the skull. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Mark in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the crucifixion of Jesus. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Mark 14 through 15 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, thank you for these important lessons. May we hide them away in our hearts. Seal them in our hearts tonight. Make them part of our lives. And Lord, we pray for the power of your spirit. We don't want that weakness of the flesh. We don't want to live after the flesh. We know, Lord, that the flesh life is miserable. It's filled with strife and envy, and it ends in death. Lord, we want to live and walk after the Spirit. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord be with you, bless you, fill you with His Spirit, with his love in Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. For years, Pastor Chuck was asked thousands of questions. This new guy that my mom married, he thinks that the Christian beliefs are foolish, and I was wondering if that's going to like affect my mom's walk. I'm a Christian. I'm trying to fight the addiction of smoking, and are those things going to keep me from going in the rapture? Is it okay to use your tithes and give it to someone who's going on a mission trip instead of giving it directly to church? The Word for Today is pleased to present an ebook called Biblical Counseling by Chuck Smith, listing over 200 topics that include Pastor Chuck's commentary and the scripture references he used. Topics include addiction, business relationships, depression, lawsuits, sexuality, training children, and so much more. To download the Biblical Counseling ebook by Chuck Smith, visit thewordfortoday.org and click on the link provided. Or you can call 1-800-272-9673.